0: When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So grab a cuppa and enjoy.
1: Hello, brave mamas. Are you ready to get the lowdown about everything women's health? I'm your host, Steph Thompson, and I can't wait to share our special guest with you today. Knowing our next guest was from Victoria, I grabbed myself a cup of Madame Flavour's Morning Melbourne Blend. I'm loving that hint of vanilla bean for that extra sweetness without having to add the sugar. So welcome to the Brave Mama podcast. Today we are talking with Pinky McKay and we're going to jump straight in. So Pinky, tell us, who were you before coming a mum? Wow. I was a a
2: wild young woman, I guess. I was also a nurse. Um, Yeah, I was growing up, I was the only girl in my really close neighbourhood. I grew up in a little country village in New Zealand. Yep. and um, my dad was the local truck driver and um, yes so I was the leader of the gang of boys pretty much was that right. and and then yes I, I was pretty fearless um I think of cat my dad used to cart horses for the road go and there was one in the bin in the local railway yards which were just down the road and we managed to corral him in um, a very tight space and I stole some of my mum's sugar cubes because mum was you know <laughs> quite nice about things like that <laughs> and yes we took turns feeding him sugar cubes and trying to sit on his back we could have killed ourselves but you know when the parents figured it out what we were doing so there were lots of you know, mad, mad things that we got up to. The rodeo out of the um, somebody's wash house, the lady down the road's wash house. I took one of my dad's, well, we took, herded my dad's sheep that were in the paddock, you know, and put them into her wash house. On, <laughs> and we had a rodeo as we opened the door and let the sheep out. Now, the neighbours were known for drinking a lot on a Saturday night, so they weren't awake. But, you know, I bet when but when when they woke up, when when this lady woke up on, Monday and did her washing in her outdoor wash house. There was lots of little sheet marbles in there that day. Um, yes, so we we would get caught for lots of things, but you know, I was sort of the ringleader of the local boys' group. And then coming towards the end of school, my mother was called to a meeting and she said, I'm not coming to any more meetings. You can do what you like with her. I've had a gut full of her too.
0: Oh,
2: my mother then decided she had had a gut full of me and took me to a hospital about 30 miles away for an interview to become a nurse. I oh,
1: can't. Okay. Because,
2: you know, I would live in. I wouldn't be, wouldn't be a nuisance anymore. Yep, she was putting you to work. Yeah, yeah, so she put me to work. And she said, they took her straight away. I said, yes, they saw an able-bodied young woman that they could put to work. So I did that. And actually in my first year I came off duty one day to find I'd been elected president of the student nurses I think it was just that I was such an outgoing person leader yeah. I don't know. I had taken my breakfast to Matron's office one morning because the breakfast was so rubbish <laughs> and we were all sick of getting rubbish breakfasts and I said, bugger it, I'm taking my breakfast to Matron. And, you know, in those days you could not see Matron without a formal appointment. Okay. But I just knocked on her door and put my breakfast on her desk and <laughs> she marched down and sorted out the breakfast. So I think oh, that, I was when, I. that was my thing. But I think I'd always been pretty fearless and... A little bit on the wild side, and yeah, and so, and then I went travelling, and then I met my husband, and then I was heading to the Olympic Games in Munich, actually, for um, the ones. Oh, not not for sport, just to oh, be right. there because it's always been my dream to go and watch a. An yeah, Olympics yeah, yeah, yeah. Growing up, and I was, you know, a really fast runner, but I never knew how to get anywhere else. I mean, even as a, um, it was really funny. We, we were quite. Um, as girls, life was quite restrictive growing up in the fifties and sixties still, you know, it was quite old fashioned in those days. I mean, women became nurses or teachers. I told my mother at about 15, I wanted to do medicine. And she said, you will not be wasting your father's hard-earned money on going to university. You are a girl. You will probably get married and have children. So, you know, I'd been brought up
1: with this. So I I completely, I know you got No words, no words, but respectfully no words too because that's what your mum knew. Do you know what I mean? Like that's how she was brought up. But now I think you couldn't dare say that to your children. We say to our kids they can be astronauts if they really want and we mean it.
2: (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, one of my sons did, you know, work experience with a fashion designer. You you know, like my daughters did. You know, I just don't see that there should be any limitations, but there okay. were those limitations. So I think nursing was, you know, that was what you did. Your nursing were teaching and it was convenient that I went nursing, not that I'd ever aspired to be a nurse okay. or anything like that. You know, I fit it in fine. It was, you know, it was quite a fun job. And because you're doing something different every day. As an adult, I've actually been diagnosed with ADHD when I took one of my mm. children for an assessment because he has dyslexia. Oh wow. I was formally diagnosed by the psychologist. I thought, oh,
1: that explains a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> well, yeah. Anyone listening with a child with ADHD will be like, yeah, they'll be nodding saying, yep, we get you. Wow. We get
2: you. It's okay. And it's okay. Like, yeah, we don't yeah. need to pathologize our children. You know, I've got kids with different needs and, you know, we don't need to pathologize them. We just love the kid we've got. But, yes, then I became a mother. I was... Only 21 when I had my first child. Okay. I'd come to Melbourne. I, you yes. know, as as I said, going to wanting to go to the Olympic Games, I needed more money. I was being paid $28 a fortnight in New Zealand. That was wow. a nurse's wage. You got wow. living, you got your board and lodging and you got your uniforms and you got $28 a fortnight. So play I, money. Working six days a week. <sighs> I'm gom smacked again. <laughs> smacked again, yeah. Oh, wow, wow. I'm really okay. showing my age. My... Um, my room was at the top of the fire escape, so there was plenty of room to sneak out beyond the 11 p.m. curfew. And okay. then came, I came to Melbourne. I went to Sydney first and I was waitressing. I knocked a bowl of soup in Lady Fairfax's lap. Um, Stop. Took Stop God. Up moments. Oh, my gosh. Took time out one day with a couple of girls from Germany and I stayed in their apartment at King's Cross. You know, there was a, I don't know, there was a shooting out there in the cross. It was pretty wild place back in those days. Anyway, we went back to work a day later because we'd wagged work. And Regina said she'd had the measles and I said to him, why did you say that? You can't just have one day off and have the measles. So yeah, there was a firing. We got fired. Um, <laughs> she said, I didn't know any other illness in English. <laughs> Wasn't you supposed to be a nurse? No, no, this was where we were waitressing. Oh, sorry, sorry. So yeah. over, you okay. know, we were waitressing at that stage. And then I yeah. came down to Melbourne and I started nursing again because I thought, well, I actually need somewhere to live. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> I boarded with different people in Sydney, yeah, and then came down. I actually stayed with a friend in Sydney who had a baby then, and we laugh now because she was a much younger mum, even a younger mum than me. She was about nineteen, I think, when she had her baby. And um, I said, we didn't know what the hell we were doing, did we? I said, but you know, you loved her up, you breastfed her. She's she's a beautiful grown up woman, and
1: <laughs> yeah, that's so <laughs> and true
2: designer who made, you know she made clothes for lord of the rings because she lives in new zealand you know they went back to new zealand so you know her daughter did all right despite having a very young mother brilliant and um yeah and then while i was in melbourne i picked my husband up at the pub and somehow rather we ended up getting married and then i got a thrombosis on the pill and then i got pregnant
1: right
2: was all a bit of a surprise really but yeah and then went um that baby ended up in um niku he was a big nine pound baby but ended up in NICU with a urinary tract infection okay um, when he was born yeah a few days afterwards yeah and it was still very much babies in the nursery four hourly feeding yeah Yeah, and it was like they owned your baby. And somehow rather when they took him down to Nick, it was like something snapped inside me that he was my baby. It was very strange, you know, because I could look at him in the nursery and think it's not feeding time yet for a few days and then for some reason something had clicked and we must have bonded and I would put my hands in the incubator and I'd be touching his body and stroking him and I'd be talking to him because we weren't allowed to put our hands in. You know, the babies were rotissarayed. Was he also had jaundice. Oh, yeah. Every hour they were flipped on the next side and on the fourth hour someone would hold a bottle in and feed them. You know, it was just scary stuff. And my milk, which finally had come in on about day six, yeah. had um, just gone down to about a teaspoon full. The breast pumps were these hideous glass things with a rubber bulb on the end and you squeeze the rubber bulb and it slurped your boob into the glass
1: yeah like, like a thing. cow's udder really right pretty much
2: yeah mm. but you squeeze the bulb and that created suction with such short nipple in which cracks your nipples so it was really messy and Ouch. but I had this beautiful angel of a midwife the charge nurse and she gave me a copy of the Womanly art of breastfeeding the La Leche League book which was only a very thin blue book at that stage yes but I I read it and I Somehow, you know, it just clicked and felt right. And I just had this belief that when my baby came back, my milk would come back. And she let me, when my baby came back to the ward, she let me demand feed. But oddly enough, I had said to them, you know, they wanted to send me home while my baby, I said, if you send me home, I'll jump out the window and I live upstairs. Wow. Wow i only said it i wasn't meaning it i but yeah you know i didn't think well that'll scare them kind of, you know i just said that well, and, yeah I'm not, going home. Oh, I'm not going home without my baby
1: yeah. yeah wow that's huge to have that is definitely your first experience as well that's amazing um wow i do want to talk a little bit about your family and your journey to motherhood but first i just want to know just, because I'm really curious as well, how does someone go from, you know, a nurse to becoming a best-selling author and Australia's most recognised breastfeeding expert, a partner and a mum all at the same time?
2: <laughs> how do you do it? Oh, it wasn't all at the same. It happened, it happened, it happened. You know, layer upon okay. layer upon layer. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, when I, went to, um, when I went to New Zealand when that baby was about nine months, um. I look, he was about eight months when I went to the doctor with a lump in my breast but, and I did not know anyone else who was breastfeeding. And my doctor, the GP pressed my breast, this lump, and got squirted in the eye. I didn't realise I had a blocked up. <laughs> That's oh. how much I knew about breastfeeding. <laughs> yeah, right. <I laughs> Even thought- nursing in a maternity ward, you know, which we did as part of our training, there were barely any women breastfeeding. There'd be one yeah. or two on the ward. It was such a low breastfeeding time um yeah late 60s i think that would have been and um yeah so i went back and i I wanted to know how to wean him once again my wise mother told me that if you don't wean that baby you're going to lose your husband because my baby was now about a year old my brother had taught who was nearly a year old my brother had taught him to say titty (laughs) so there was no hiding where he was or what he wanted and um I went along to La Lake Che League to find out how to wean this child and was just so relieved. It was about 15 months by then. Yeah, So relieved that um, I didn't have to because I was struggling with, now how will I wean this child because this is so, so much a part of our mothering journey and, uh, yep. you know, we'd travelled and if in doubt flop it out and he'd it, be calm, we could get on aeroplanes, we could get on, you know, buses, anything. And that kid was settled and he was a beautiful happy contented child I mean and I think that's probably part of his personality anyway I mean when you have more babies and you have a a crying one or an unsettled one or a high needs one you 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 don't I had nothing to compare but he was just a you know very contented sort of child and he's a happy-go-lucky sort of adult now so you know it was I think a lot of it was his temperament but I didn't really know how I could possibly Weighing this child and um, went to La Leche League, found I didn't have to do, there were other kids there that night, running around in their pyjamas, having booby, it was all lovely and this beautiful group of women embraced me and supported me and yeah and I had another child and it, I, I became a group leader with La Leche League, I felt, okay. that, I felt that the support that I had had was so important that I was feeling that it would be lovely to share that with other women because it was just such and a help. nice sharing environment. Yeah. Um, and then I had another baby, and then I came back to Melbourne. We moved back here when she was about six months old. I once again had no support. Um, the three children and no zero support. Mm, zero. Yeah, it was pretty tricky. Um, I was asked by because I'd been back nursing at weekends with okay the, between the kids. Yeah, and. I, um, in a postnatal ward, which I absolutely loved. You know, it was
1: just yeah. home. Like, if
0: it, yeah, yeah, you can it tell about even- right. it.
1: Right. was good, yeah. Yeah. You can just, even when you just said that, your face lit up. Like, you just, it did, yeah. When you feel like home, you feel good, right? Mm.
2: yeah, it was beautiful. Every Saturday and Sunday morning, I'd get on my bike and ride to the hospital and the freezing cold and... <laughs> Sometimes it'd be nighttime, and I'd just ride home in the dark. Like it was just what you did. You know, yeah. it wasn't, it was really great. And, you know, people say a oh, nice break from the kids. Well, it wasn't even about that. It was just that I really loved you did. working with other mothers, with little babies and the women who worked with them, the other mid, you know, the midwives, I'm not a midwife, but the midwives, it was just such a beautiful environment, you know, that supporting these mothers. And New Zealand was doing you know, we're having meetings about home birth, and so birth was considered very natural, it wasn't pathologized. Okay, I got such a fright like one day when I was working in an antenatal ward, and um, the labor ward you could be hearing, you could hear some women screaming, and one of the girls to me, Is it really that bad? And I said, Oh. <laughs> no i don't know not usually you know or something like that you know one of the mums who was pregnant but i actually preferred the postnatal stuff and mostly i did that it was just very occasionally i put on an antenatal ward but um yeah so just working with those mums and babies was really lovely came back to melbourne didn't have that support was asked to go to sydney and flown to sydney to demonstrate a new zealand breast pump okay. and which was a, a brand new ube padded cups non-glass but it was a big, yes. yes yeah fantastic glass things but it was a new kind of invention by a lactation physiologist who actually had worked with dairy cows
0: oh, then research
2: but then you know he worked with women too he was one of our advisors at lalachele yeah. so waddy whittlestone anyway we um i went up there at was that at a nursing mother's conference where there were beautiful posters all around the rooms of mothers and babies, but there were no babies there. They were all in a childcare crèche. And I was asked to put my baby in a crèche. So I went with my baby and sat in the crèche. But the rest of the day, the milker was held up in customs. Then I got back on the plane and came home.
1: Oh, and wow. thought, well, I'm
2: never going near those women again. <laughs> I mean, of course I would never say that about the Australian Breastfeeding Association now, but that was the culture yeah. at that particular time.
1: Quite and so, true.
2: yeah, so I actually, and but while I was there, I met their vice president, who was a really lovely lady, and we're still, you know, best friends. She's she lives in Western Australia now, but um, she didn't live far from me, and we actually started a Lauchy League group. Okay, in the suburbs of Melbourne, and I just put a little notice in the local paper, and these women came from. I bet you they did. One from Turkey, one from South, or oh, a couple from South Africa, some from America, and they'd all all came together, and then local women just happened to join, and it yep. was just this mad group of kind of very relaxed hippie type women who would rock up to my place I'd have a pot of soup on and the kids would play for the rest of the day more or less but that um, was your that's really your village right these women I was finding felt, that village because like I just you. couldn't find it yeah. yeah and they didn't and, and as far people. as things like you know La had this support around Um, nutrition so you would never find a Tim Tam at a an League meeting it would always be whole foods and I you know started feeding you know that's that's what I was feeding my family Um, and things like discipline you know that oh I didn't want to smack my children I've been brought up with leather straps my mother actually has a bipolar disorder and she would often be very unwell and her way of controlling me. And, again, not necessarily because she was done well, but when she couldn't cope, it was out with the leather straps, you know, whereas, yeah. which I used to hide. I was an absolute, you know, well genius. No one would want them. Like, come on. Everyone no one would want to hide them. Yes. But lots of children did not hide their parents' straps because yeah. parents had the ultimate
1: authority. In well, chairs. do you know what? I think In I see a lot of my... Own personality traits in you, just in the stories that you tell. Because the one we moved from our childhood home once, and when the removalist picked up the washing machine, he found <laughs> twelve wooden spoons underneath where I'd been hiding them. <laughs> My friend buried hers in the garden, or her mother's wooden spoons in the garden. <laughs> You, they didn't think what's happening to all these wooden spoons i mean like we didn't get smacked often but enough to to just hide the wooden spoon then they were found years <laughs> later
2: <laughs> how funny it was something similar when my sister moved a wardrobe and then their um outdoor outside bungalow for my kids to stay she moved this wardrobe and there were all the straps on to do the wardrobe <laughs> <All right. laughs> and my kids looked at her she brought them out by night and my mother's this tiny little white headed lady you know well in her 80s she's 90 in her 90s now but my youngest kid looked at me and he says oh that's right they said to my mom did you really hit mum?" With those and yeah. granny and she said I had to she was such a naughty girl and my youngest one looked up at me I was about nine at the
1: time and he said didn't you run
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh wow how we've changed over the times like I, if my dad was saying I would get a smack there's no way I would run because I knew it would be worse like you just stood there and you just went yeah. okay that's what you had to do with authority now but now it's different right it's just mm. evolved but and having
2: been patterned to you know and brought up with smacks, you had to have something else in your toolbox yeah so it was about going out and learning what else I could put in my toolbox and how I could do these things and you know, reading things like Dr. Sears discipline book was really helpful to me, but that was in my in the La Leche League Library. You know, like people thought still thought you were spoiling your children in the seventies, mm-hmm. which my kids are probably similar ages to you. And, you know, yeah. if, if you didn't hit your children. So I was quite a weirdo mm-hmm. in that I would not hit my children. And yeah, so so to find that village was really important to find people who had a similar um, belief around children. Yeah. So that mothers can feel
1: supported because we can't do it all on our own. The expectation is that we can, if we just read the oh, books yeah. and watch the YouTube clips and what now, that we should just be able to nail it, right? Follow yeah. the recipe. <laughs> yeah. So um, we're up to the third child, but I believe that there's. Uh, another one or two children two. in your yeah. yeah okay I had so, another
2: one I had a fourth one and then I I became really ill I've got an autoimmune disorder but it fled up and then you know eight years later I found I was surprisingly pregnant with the bonus baby and I thought now I'll die but no i got better and better and but at that time though I had between those children when my fourth one was little I actually had I was homeschooling my kids mm-hmm. and I came across um, an assignment that I wanted to do with them, which okay. actually was an ad in a newspaper um, and, you know, you had to come up with, I think it was five brands of incident coffee and you had to give them that, you know, then you had to name them and choose your name, write your ad. You had to write a radio script and a TV script or something like that. And and I thought, oh, this will be fun for the kids do. And then, I don't know, it just kept playing off in my head and... So I, had a, so I went and did the assignment and sent it in. Not hmm. thinking a lot more about it, I think it was one of those competition things. Well, I okay. got into this course because yeah. uh, I'd entered a few competitions. I'd had trailer loads of stuff arrive at my door for babies and things, you know, it was, that I'd managed to win out of magazines. Oh. So anyway, I sent, I sent this in and I got Alita, I don't know, weeks a months later telling me that I'd been accepted into this amazing course. Okay, and it was an advertising copywriting course I still didn't know what an advertising copywriter did so yeah. I ra- rang a friend who was at the time had a boyfriend who was working in advertising I said can I ring John and ask him about this he said to me if you don't do this course you are an effing idiot
1: oh wow
2: he yeah. said you know they have 10 2,000 applicants every year and they take 10 people and, you and I won. went oh they picked me it was hilarious I mean it was you know the late 80s there were Porsches up and down St Kilda Road there were men with leather jackets and baggy pants there were a few hard-nosed women who were working really hard Simon Reynolds had just done the um, AIDS ad the very first AIDS yeah ad, you yeah know, the bowling balls and and the Grim Reaper and I actually know him now he's actually a friend these days oh wow you know.
0: wow
2: but you know it was just such a a crazy time and out of my world. And I took my breastfeeding two-year-old with me to weekend workshops. That How we was that received at the time? Uh, people just looked at me like, uh, I mean, everyone was wearing black, black and black. I'd never seen so much expensive alcohol in my whole life. Wow! Um, and there's probably more than that there that I didn't actually see. But, yeah. you know, I'm going and my very articulate two-year-old looked at one of the men with his paisley shirt and said, Man's wearing his pajama top. <laughs> <laughs> I got kicked out of a briefing because a client would come on the Friday night and do a briefing, and then we had to create a campaign over the weekend and then present it. Sure. And I actually won the talent quest both times. Um,
1: <laughs> I love it. This is so for so the comedy
2: skit. Not with, not with you know, I can't sing or anything like that. So I just thought I've got to do a comedy skit. Um, Yeah. And I did really well with my presentations of my ads. So I started and I was offered some really great jobs, but advertising isn't a place that I could have worked with four little children. So, you know, because you're locked up for a week at a time coming up with a campaign in a hotel, you know, there's, it just wasn't compatible with four children. I didn't have um, any family support around, you know, for child minding or anything. I was homeschooling my older kids, the two boys, Um, so I worked a friend, paid a friend to mind the kids on a Friday and I went into a personnel agency and wrote all their ads for the week, you know, for the weekend papers. Yeah. Thursday that I do, but one day a week I'd go in and do all that, um, and do their creative for them. And I also had some private clients. Um, yeah. And then I got very ill with this autoimmune disorder and, I could barely walk past my letterbox for about six months. So wow. I wrote an article and sent it into the age. Okay. Nobody knew I wasn't a journalist. <sighs> there was no internet, you know, of whatever. Course. And yep. yeah. And I had um, and then someone, the person that I wrote the article for rang up and said, Can you write more? And then someone from the Herald Sun rang me up and said, Can you write for me? Because <laughs> in those days. Well, wasn't the herald Sun? it was the herald and the sun so yeah. the herald was the evening paper and they rang up and asked and i said oh what about what what what's your you know thing and he said oh health education or families and i went oh, thank god it's not politics or finance i can
1: wing this one <laughs> you can do families i've got one <laughs> i can yeah. do this yeah yeah and
2: so and then the feminist pages i used to write for there was a um, feminist page Love it. can you imagine sitting with a baby you know a toddler who's climbed onto your breast sucking away while you're discussing how you have to go in and watch the um (laughs) a one-woman play about King Lear and you have to come back and write the feminist perspective and I just used to think thank goodness there's no video
1: telephone which of course now there is (laughs) (laughs) well it would just add value to the story but feminism wouldn't it really I mean that's 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 what I thought I just thought you know mothering is a feminist issue and so
2: you know that was so that worked really really well and you know meanwhile well this was my youngest child I hang on sorry that was Sarah yeah but um yeah and then I got pregnant with the youngest child and there was a job came up writing for uh, what was actually called um what was it called the Melbourne baby book Okay. And they gave it to me. Well, I'd gone in to do an um, interview for the bargain shopper's guide because I thought, well, look, I can work from home. Cool. Accepting that this was going to be, I don't know, it was a three month or six month job assignment. Might've been a six month assignment. It's quite a long one. And I thought pre- my two previous pregnancies, I'd had a lot of bleeding during the pregnancies. And I thought, oh, okay, I really can't, Although they were going to give me the job. I said, look, I really can't commit to this because it's a bit too long. And they said, would you like to do the baby book? And I went, cool. And then, because I was right in it and because I had done all this La you Leche know, training and everything, I started to think, <clears throat> I kept ringing them up and saying, look, you've got some stuff in here, but it's wrong. And they said, do you want to rewrite it for us? And I went, cool. "Oh, Sure. And then I started writing for baby magazines and I started um, and then somebody tapped me on the shoulder to write, It was a book called? Um, it was an American book and they wanted me to adapt it to Australian um, families local. Yeah, yeah Australian families and once again you know it was it was about talking to ki- I mean I renamed it to how do we tell the kids but it was something like talking to kids about really important things you know like you know how some of the American books used to have the title covered the whole page yeah 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 <laughs> so it was something like that and then of course I kept saying yeah but some of this doesn't really make sense you know if you're actually talking to kids you can't avoid it like if get pregnant don't tell your children too soon because if you have a miscarriage you'll have to explain that
1: right yes but you were saying perhaps we should be talking to our kids about this because this is what we're going through it's life and if we do have a miscarriage we don't really
2: want the children to blame themselves for mummy being upset when there's another reason you know and you can talk to children about things at their level so I Mm. went out and interviewed experts I mean I don't profess to be an expert about these topics but I went out and talked to experts from all of these different aspects and you know did the did the book signed over copyright I had no clue oh
1: (laughs) oh (laughs) I already know what you mean by that now because um my publisher said to me never sign over the full rights to your book Stephanie never ever ever and I'm still like well okay sure no one's asked me yet so i'll talk to him no but it. i but that's it you know you go into these things and you
2: really don't know so there was lots of and i just sort of thought i need to mention that because there will be people out there who were doing things starting from the beginning where that's i started right. from yeah who won't know these things and um the internet came in and
0: of course Changed we were
2: them. bombarded by the time i had my my youngest child, you know, is a digital native, really, since, you know, he's born in the 90s. So I had oh, these yeah. first two in the 70s and next girls in the 80s. And then I had this baby, there's nearly 18 years between the oldest and the youngest. So this bonus baby, you know, the internet was around and, and, oh my God, we were so overloaded with information, but I was noticing that we were no longer trusting our instincts, we were looking, or our babies, we were looking outside for instructions
1: yes and
2: that was where my book parenting by heart came from was you know and I found a publisher and I explained to her you know I rang a Melbourne publisher because I was writing for Sydney based magazines and I said to her look I really feel that I'd love to do a book about this yep um you know parenting by heart and she said look we don't do parenting books so I said look if I give you a one-pager can you just have a Steer look. me in the right direction. Sure. And she rang me up a week later, you know, hear about all these slush piles and said, come for lunch. Love it. Oh, that's and good. Yeah. So I got this book and she said, can you put something in there for partners? Well, fathers it was in those days. It wasn't partners, but it was fathers. And yes. I said, well, I'm not telling people what to do. So, yes, I'll be interviewing, you
0: okay. know,
2: both parents. Yep. And it was really fascinating because I would say to the guys, I don't want to know what you do. I don't care how many nappies you change. How do you mm-hmm. feel? And there'd be all these men tearing up because, and they'd say, no one ever asks us that. They never do. They
1: never do. No. no.
0: Even no. I don't think,
1: happens. I was going to say, I don't think that has changed a whole lot, um, especially for women like myself who have been through quite traumatic births. We, um, we care about the baby being alive first and foremost then maybe a little bit of the mum and nothing of the dad. And that's in oh. the lived experience that I've spoken to other women because the mum is still trying to process, heal, be a mum. at the same time, That there is not a lot of space for the dad and there's not a lot of support for them when it comes to this stuff at all. It's this. It's a whole new, it's a whole other market. It is really. another market. And, I mean, the statistics
2: say that, I just read a statistic last night, that 4.5. Four, you know 4.5% of men will have what was it like PTSD. yeah like 5% of women will get P and the men are about 4% like it's, it's very close. close no sorry one in 4.5 and one in 5 women that didn't sound big enough it wasn't 5% it was one in 5 women will get P and one in 4.5 men will get P and you just go wow that's yeah. pretty sobering isn't it that the it's whole scary. family needs support
1: yeah I would love to talk about that some more a little bit because I know that um, you've just mentioned you've had babies in three different generations how were those experiences different for you in that birthing suite Or, or I'm not sure if you home birthed any of your children but as the years went on how did the birth change how did the actual process change when I had my first
2: baby It was all quite sterile and it was rollover, dairy, and I got a shot of pethidine in the bum. No, please or thank you. Just not long before my baby was born, which is probably why he didn't suck well, why my milk came in late. I mean, it might have just been my body being first baby, but whatever. When I had my second child, I had him in New Zealand. I had an incredibly fast labour, but I went to the local GP obstetrician who was, his wife went to play centre with me, you know, and Michael comes in and says, Oh, they they told me off for not timing my contractions when I arrived in the hospital. I said, Oh, they're not strong enough yet. I was comparing <laughs> it to my first baby. Yes. But this is good news for anyone having a second baby.
1: <laughs> a <lot laughs> and he about.
2: came in and he did a quick check. He said, I'll be back in an hour to catch your baby. I said, Michael, please don't talk shit to me. <laughs> you know, I don't want I don't want you buttering me up, you know, like he said, I'm not. He said, I'm serious. And I went, oh. Anyway, they came back about me not timing my contractions again. I only still had the shave and enema with both babies. Right, first baby, it was from knees to navel. Really, full shave, wow. perineum, the works. Why? Yep. Do you know why? And, and, ed- I'm and a water enema. Well, if you needed intervention, if you needed a C-section, you would have had to be shaved. They shaved you for surgery wow. for sterile purposes.
1: Yes. Okay. Right. <laughs> can they have just it? had to slap on the you
2: know chrome or whatever the hell it was that they were putting on your belly and slash you that would be can, it
1: can you see me trying to do the math so they shave you from front to back so that was if they had to do an episiotomy as well like i take it oh yeah probably. Caesar, maybe yeah yeah well i had an episiotomy anyway you know that that was
2: part of the deal and I, I had my first baby lying on my left side with my right leg in a stirrup yeah okay that was it pulled him out like a sausage from the back, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> that was how they did it, you know, you're lying down. With my next baby, of course, this is in New Zealand, second baby, and Michael, my doctor, had said, you know, I'll be back in an hour. Well, about three contractions later, I just looked at my husband and said, holy shit, I'm in transition. Go get a nurse because if it's happening this fast, I want to push in a moment. And so the nurses came, lifted up the sheet, had a quick peek, Grabbed each end of this bed that I was on and raced up the corridor. And my husband's trying no. to pick up, the, pick up to the to the birthing room. You know the birthing suite. Oh, so yeah. You know the, What do you call it? The yeah, the birth room. Yeah, yeah. I can't even remember what you call it, but you, you were know, right. The
1: birthing been. suite. Yeah, yeah. Because I think these yeah. days, will you go if you are labouring? They make you stay home until you're ready to go into the hmm. birthing suite. So you're only going the birthing suite.
2: Well, I think it was a birthing suite because there were other labouring women in these beds. But, yeah. you know, they, they, they moved me into the operating room, I suppose you'd call it. it because it was a big high table, kind yes. of a hard thing, that they told me to get up on. I'm thinking, God, this baby's going to, I have a watermelon right in my crutch and this baby's going to just drop on the floor between the bed and the whatever. But my husband was busy picking up all the stuff. And to follow me, and we, by the time he got where we were going, There were several doors and they were all shut. So he didn't know which one to walk in. And of course, nobody worried about the poor dad in the corridor with the (laughs) lady's bags. And the midwife looked at me and said, oh dear, you had a big episiotomy last time. Nurse, find my local anaesthetic. (laughs) So she's going over to the bench with the nurses. And I, you know, when you're in that second stage, you say what comes out of your mouth. I said, do you know what the fuck you're doing? <laughs> and she said, I beg your pardon. But she said, I beg your pardon. You know, but I didn't hear it like that. I thought she hadn't heard me. So I shouted it really loudly at her. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh my and then, you know, she's and, and sort of after, just after that moment, she's got her scissors and everything ready. Um you know, Michael, the doctor walks in. He says, well, what are you doing lying on your back? Sit up. you are got to watch this baby be born. So he helped me up to squat. And, yes, he caught the baby. And meanwhile, the doorbell had rung and they'd run into the next delivery room. And, you know, he's stitching up this episiotomy. The baby's in the – my baby, Jonathan, was in the cradle next to me, you know, next to the bed. And they called him, Michael, Michael, come here. And yeah. so the doors were open between. All I could see was people's backs. as oh, there. Yeah. Apparently, a young woman had arrived in a taxi with a baby, but she also had another one coming. She had undiagnosed twins. So they were all in there looking after her. My husband's somewhere at the corridor. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know These... if I could pick up my baby. I didn't know if I was fully stitched up. I had no idea. I was, but I didn't know that at the time. Of course. So I'm just lying there, you know, half naked with a sheet over all bits. open yeah so that was a bit oh of a my. debacle but you know it worked well but in the ward um we didn't have you know the four feeding thing but i was allowed to demand feed but the first three days until your milk came in after every feed you were supposed to give your baby this bottle of i think it was lactose and water it was called carolac it was a oh, sugar yeah. water thing but there were four women in this ward you know, each section of the ward. So the other woman with me, I mean, we knew about breastfeeding by then. We, we weren't silly ladies. We'd, we'd had yeah. other babies. Yeah, well, there yeah. was one first-time mother. But we were all joking about, what are you doing with this sugar water? Because we're not giving it, I'm not giving it to my baby. One yeah. woman said, well, I'm drinking it. One <laughs> said, I'm putting it in the flowers. And I said, yes, but how much do you drink? Because if we drink too much, they'll
1: keep coming our
2: babies need a formula comp because the baby's hungry. And... So we just didn't know what the balance
1: was, whether to drink a lot or drink just a bit or what. Wow. This is phenomenal. I can't believe this happened. I didn't know any of this. Oh, wow.
2: Right, yeah. So I did have a sign on my bed, no formula, but we would wait till the babies, you know, brought, they were all brought out to us in the morning because they stayed in the nursery overnight and after the third day you were called down to feed your baby. But I'd get up in the night and go down and know my milk actually was in by about 24 hours this time so it came in very quickly um because i'd only my other child had only weaned during my pregnancy so you know and he was a two-year-old by then um just on two um yeah and then michael my doctor came in one morning brought the baby to me he says he was awake i brought him to you because he already had you know they had three kids and they were very natural him and his wife about you know breastfeeding and birthing and that so you know, he'd absolutely ignored the nurses, brought this baby to me because he was awake and it wasn't feed time. <laughs> go, Michael. <laughs> go, Michael. Go, Michael.
1: So by the time you,
2: yeah. So by the time your milk came in, you know, we, we just insisted on, you know, we just did demand feed. And then yeah. it was between that baby and the next one that I was working um, weekends. At that okay. same hospital and they bought built a, you know a brand new women's hospital there it was great and i knew the charge sister and my, once again when i had that baby michael was at the olympic games because he was a sports medicine doctor as well so <laughs> i had a resident who i had worked with on the ward okay um you know, registrar actually and he was, he was a resident. i don't know he, anyway he was locum for michael while he was away It was the middle of July. It was a very cold night and his car wouldn't start. So he got up there in his pajamas just (laughs) after the baby being born. But I had a beautiful Maori midwife. You know, the the midwives there were great. You know, by then they were very natural. Okay, wasn't. You know, nothing was pathologized. Everything was natural. My mother had called me that morning and said something about, oh, you're still here. And I said, yeah, well, where did you think I'd be? Did
0: and you know, she said,
2: I had a dream that you had a baby girl. I said, well, you've only got grandsons, so of course you would. Mm-hmm. And she said, um, uh, no, I ripped your whole birth and the placenta didn't come away. I said, oh. and what happened then? She said, oh, no, it took about half an hour that nothing, you know, you didn't get... Whipped off or anything yep. like that I went oh okay mum and I took no notice of her and then this midwife had said to me I, I still remember I don't remember the times of any of my other kids births um you know rough time like it might have been 5am or midnight or yeah, whatever. Yeah. but this one exactly because the midwife said to me um and my husband hadn't been there for either of the other births so okay I told her that and I said look he's probably a little bit anxious so she sat him in the corner <laughs> Good, Where he, good, good, he would good, have good, had to yeah. jump over the bed to, you know, get out of the door anyway. There was no getting out of it. He was sitting there and um, she said, oh, you'll have this baby. I was in transition. She said, you'll have this baby by five o'clock. I said, no freaking way. She'll <laughs> be out by 22. And I wasn't even looking at the clock and this baby came out right on 20 to five.
0: Hi, I'm Corinne Noyes. I'm the owner and founder of Madame Flavor. I founded the business 15 years ago out of a real passion to create beautiful sensory experiences for women. And these days I do my blending from my little sanctuary in South Gippsland in Victoria. I love choosing classic teas from around the world and then adding little special touches like Australian um, lemon myrtle, round leaf mint or mountain pepper and I know that it is In some ways, a small thing, although tea lovers may beg to differ. But at the moment, small touches can make a real difference. And Madam Flavor, for me, is all about women feeling good about themselves, feeling cared for and encouraging connection with self and (laughs) self-care.
2: Yeah, it was just weird. It was like I was just so in tune with my body. Hmm. Um, Yeah, and... Um yeah, and, and then, you know, the um my husband we asked for the phone because no mobiles. Yeah. Rang Eileen, the friend that was minding my kids, and she brought the kids up. So they were all there, but this placenta hadn't come away. You know, as she printed oh, us before. Right. Yeah. And I she I said, Oh God, my mum said the placenta didn't come away. And she said, What did she say next? Because being Maori, they're very um respectful of this intuitive Mm -hmm. sort of stuff. And um, I said, oh, she said it only took about half an hour. She said, oh, I'll put her on the boob and we'll see what happens. Watched, kept an eye on me and it came away. So it worked, you know, like it was just lovely and natural. And then, of course, when I did go to the ward, um, one of the nurses came in one day because we had single rooms by then because it was a slash new hospital. She said, is there anything you need, Mrs. McKay?" We've been told that we're not allowed to give you any advice because you know what you're doing. So <laughs> that was, you know, Gail, a charge nurse, had told me because I'd worked with her, and she was, you know, she'd obviously <laughs> said to her,
1: "Oh, that's they were lovely." But, well, and that's then, nice that they ask.
2: Yeah, yeah. And my kids could come in at any time, so my little one would come in, and he was about four and a half, and he'd come in and bring us. You know, my husband might make him some sandwiches or something, and then one night. Michael comes in to visit me one day, and he says, "You have to go home tomorrow today." He says, <laughs> "Rick rang me last night. One of the kids has got a cold, and he, and he was reading everything out of your medicine cabinet. He was reading all the labels of all the bottles in your medicine cabinet to me over the phone to see what he could give him." <laughs> Bless. Oh, good. So I had to go home. Yeah. But I actually, actually, it was my second one. I actually had a hemorrhage after I'd got home. About oh, a week later, okay. Yeah, about a week after he was born, I had a secondary hemorrhage,
1: yeah. See, so people don't talk about those type of things, do they, Pinky? They just, so the hemorrhaging and the episiotomies and things like that, I feel like they're missing from the pregnancy books, um, you know, the words like forceps. They're just not really in there. And I think because I honestly believe they, they don't want to scare women before yeah. birth so yeah. that they are yeah. relaxed. But I do want to go on to talking about I watched your TEDx talk on surrender and it struck a chord with me in particular. And I think a lot of people within the brave motherhood, because we are women who find it really hard to surrender. So, for example, when someone says to you, just trust your instincts, my mind would say, well, what the are they saying I don't know what they're actually telling me I think I need to do this and you gave an example of a lady who wrote everything that the child was doing left breast right breast timing poo and I swear I have that book I have that book with my first I still have it and I used to write the second, like the minute that she went to sleep and the minute she woke up and was it long enough and analysing all this data. I don't know if it's because I had such a traumatic birth that I just couldn't surrender. And so I always had this conflicting thing when people say, "Or oh, just relax and get into the groove and get to know your baby. But what if you just can't?
2: What I would say, say to women... Say? I have seen so many women with those notebooks, those exercise books with those times. I mean, that was just, you know, a a particular woman, but she was representing so many women that I have seen, yes. Yes. And I think, you know, it plays on my mind too because I think what is this about? But I think we have one generation of women who have, worked had careers been organized it's not just a personality thing it's it's a whole change in society where women have tried so so hard to get where they're going like you know my story about being told I couldn't do medicine because I was yes. a girl yes you know there, there is you know there's this whole new generation who haven't got mothers who've modeled it for them I mean they probably modeled it but they've you know, we, I just wonder sometimes did we make mothering look easy because we were at home a lot of the time when our babies were very small. You know, generally yes. we were at home and we could work into that. We had community generally around us, not with every baby perhaps, but, you know, and I had times when I didn't. But, you know, generally there was community around um, and I think it was easier to not follow and then of course the internet comes in and there's so much information and there's people from across the other side of the world telling you you're doing the wrong thing yeah so your head is in a mess even (laughs) though you know even though you've got those hormones that you're battling with that are telling you to tune into your you know they're making sure you tune into your baby but you've got all this noise around you so it's really hard and I would say to a woman you know when you do get that horrible conflict try and filter it by saying is it safe Is it respectful and does this feel right for me?
1: That's the hardest part. Uh, It took me, so uh, with my first, I never got it. I never got to that surrender stage. I would sit there and I'd be crying every breastfeed and I'd be struggling because I didn't think she was getting enough. But one person would tell you that she is and that one, and I was trying to hire all these experts to come and help me because the books and the internet were, Mind-boggling and very dangerous, I think, to me at that stage. Um, but even getting some people to help, I, I had this nurse come out, this you know, breast care nurse, and she basically just said, "Oh, Stephanie, just start enjoying this baby for goodness' sake." And that's that. That's how it was told to me. So then I thought, well, I can't even do that. I'm failing everything, you know. Like I can't even enjoy this baby. Um, it was a really hard time, actually, but. You'd feel worse. I did. If you're feeling stressed and somebody says, oh, relax.
2: Calm down. (laughs) Even if you haven't got a baby, it doesn't do anything to you. Yeah. You just get more frustrated.
1: Yeah. And I tell you, what probably did help for me with my second baby was that my mum and sister obviously recognised that I needed something because I was going down that same rabbit hole of stress and anxiety because I had a baby. I could breastfeed this time. I was like, yeah, I can do it. My boobs are doing their job. But then the baby decided that there was a whole lot of allergies and issues and reflux and tongue tie that would make him projectile vomit and scream. So I got to the point where they got they hired help to come into the house and I liked the way she worked because she was methodical, which aligned with me. She would put the baby on, weigh him, put him on the other breast, weigh him, okay, probably, he probably is getting enough. But even all after all of that, I still never found that I could relax like I pictured I would when I was pregnant. When I was pregnant, my baby was going to live on that breast until the day they were ready to say, bye, mum, I'm going to school. And that never happened. And so I think a lot of mums do feel like that failure, that first formula fed bottle, I felt like I was giving arsenic to my baby.
0: It was, oh, horrible. I was
1: so bad, so it? horrible. I was shaking. It was So horrible. I there was nowhere to call. There was uh, I rang the breastfeeding hotline and said, "Look, I I think I need to do this. How do I even set up the bottle?" And they said, "We can't help you because you're not breastfeeding." Oh. oh no
2: Yeah, which no, I
1: suppose is, is their thing, but then where do correct. we go? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like oh. We have all the books in the world a library full of books on how to breastfeed mm. and be a mum and do all of that. But when it doesn't work and when you can't trust your instincts and you can't surrender and you don't know that you can't surrender, you think you are, you think you're trying to relax and you're still not getting it, it's only in hindsight you can look back and go, oh, man, I wish I would have known what I know now. <laughs>
2: I think a postnatal doula can be helpful, you know, someone to love you up and give you food and be kind to you because that's what people need. I know my own daughter had her baby in lockdown in Dubai, right across the world. (laughs) Um, And her husband's a pilot, so he was away, you know, flying away. And about three weeks in, she'd had a C-section, she'd had an infection, she was struggling with breastfeeding, all of that. And I was just so anxious that she was going to go down a rabbit hole because she'd had ridiculous... Advice. Um, and with lockdown, $50,000 fines, gu- um, guards on the gate of the compound, I managed to find her a doula who was the most beautiful, kind English woman who had, she had twins herself who were five years old. Like she'd been a recent yeah. mum. Yeah, yeah. Um, and gone through the ropes. But she was actually a trained doula and she was, um, able to get into Sarah's compound she was in the next compound because the dry cleaners and the um, medical center was in Sarah's compound so she was able to chuck her husband's uniform on the back and get in there to help Sarah but she was the most calm and beautiful and non-judgmental non-advising because my daughter had done corporate you know she was she's the super organized one in our family she organizes me you know and and, Yeah. yeah and it was very stressful for her but she also had been imprinted with, you know, relaxed cool. and nurturing and that sort of thing, but it still wasn't, you know, she was still anxious about even lying down and cuddling your baby, those sorts of things. Cause he was tiny. You know, there were lots of things that felt so typical to me of the mothers that I see, Yeah. you know, that are well into their yeah, um, thirties. I've had an organized life mm-hmm. and then to trust, what's going on in your body and your baby when you've got people telling you that you might be starving your baby. Um, You know, that's a really primal fear for mothers. Yes. So I think having someone that's experienced and look, people can't do this in COVID. I I just find it really sad for a lot of mums who are having babies in lockdown that can't have someone in their home to just be kind and gentle and accepting of where that mother's at. And I think that's the person you need to help you. You can't just have someone say, "Surrender" or yeah. "Relax," yeah.
1: because enjoy your baby,
2: <laughs> enjoy your baby, because then that that loads more rocks in your wheelbarrow of, well, I can't even enjoy my baby because you know he doesn't even feel like mine anyway. Someone's going to come and get him because I'm not a good enough
1: mother. A hundred percent. Yeah, I still dealing. um. I still have the photos. she took it she took my camera and said here let me take a photo because Elsie was asleep on my chest she goes let me take a photo and I look back at it now and I just remember that point in time when I was really drowning but I didn't know the words to say I need help um I I didn't even know I didn't even know that I was not doing okay and I think that's really scary for mom you know that information overload is it's intense and it's too much and so my question would be, if we don't want to scare mums before they become mums, how do we gently tell them? How do we gently give them the message that, of you know your message of being able to surrender and enjoy their um, enjoy their baby for real?
2: <laughs> I think it's a process. I don't think you can actually tell mums that... You know there can be hard days, and you're not alone because I don't know that your headspace is. I mean, I think listening to stories of other women is really helpful, mm-hmm. which is what you're doing. You know, with your podcast and what yeah. you're doing with your books. You know, telling mothers different stories. But again, it's like I I couldn't send your book to my daughter before she had a baby because the title said the day my vagina broke. Yes, and yes. I thought that's too much for her now, but afterwards maybe she might need that.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. Sort of, I think it's
2: in the timing.
1: In reflection, like I still, I'm still, i still for the title, but um, we had Lucy Bloom who wrote the Cheers to Childbirth for Dad, Guide for yep, dads. I know Lucy. Yep. Yeah, she said the same thing. She said, I think your book is brilli- brilliantly written for medicals and the people charged caring for women. So the ones above who can yep. take it, absorb it, and then educate it in a gentle way to women. And I I often have had to reflect and think, oh, I don't want to be scaring women. I know that's a scary title, but the, the theme throughout it and the reflective questions were never meant to be fear. Mm-hmm. It's more about knowing that I think too because all of the pregnancy books I read, no one even mentions the word birth trauma or things that can happen like, you know, when your baby's posterior and it gets stuck and you need forceps and cesarean sections and all of that information was missing. I was trying to kind of create the, the volume two of the natural birth guide. <laughs> I and mean, just to say, look, if you, if it comes to the point where you need a cesarean, perhaps you need to talk about that before you're in labor. So maybe back at, you know, month two or three, where you can, like you said, process that information in and in when you're not in that heightened emotional state because you can't make decisions when you're in labor like that if you don't know even the words they're saying i think um the oh. registrar said to me i'm gonna do an episiotomy and i was like "Oh, what a peasy what <laughs> what are you doing yeah yeah well i didn't have a clue but you know i well i didn't know i did have a clue
2: i'd seen them being done but you know I, and i wasn't frightened of them and they really don't hurt and all that sort of thing you know i mean i with my other babies anyway they're all between nine and ten pounds which i don't even know if that's relevant but you know one scar tissue you probably have a few more tears but whatever it didn't it was something i recovered from it wasn't a big deal i mean it was my fourth baby though i had an induction and i'd never had an induction okay you know and this was again and and i actually that particular birth i had weird dreams for at least six months afterwards dreaming about going back and having that baby again properly
1: oh wow so you mean not having the induction Natural.
2: well it wasn't just wow. the induction it was actually the way I was treated
1: okay. during the
2: labor yeah sure. which was again not scaring women you know it happened I didn't I didn't think I was traumatized but I did have tears but I again I'd come back to Melbourne and it was my first baby in Melbourne which wasn't as far ahead as New Zealanders Right? you know as far as normalizing birth and my water's broke. So I thought I'd better go up to the hospital because I had had these two very rapid labours. Yes. And when I got there, I was told that there was not a private room available for me and my baby. And for some reason the switch went off. Um, And, you know, because I was having good contractions before I went thinking this will be, you know, I'll I'll wait till I've got some contractions. Yeah. And went up there and um, the midwife said that. And then, they decided that they would wait all day and nothing happened. I mean, I've, I had labour, I had contractions, but they weren't good opening up contractions. They assigned me a medical student, which was absolutely wonderful because I was able to educate this young man. You know, he'd feel <laughs> my belly and saying, oh, that was a good one. I'm going, no, but it's not a proper one.
1: Oh, wow. You know, it was a
2: good one on the outside, but I couldn't feel my cervix doing anything. Yes, and yes. And then the next day they decided to give me you know, put the drip in, you know, if I hadn't gone to labor in the night, they're going to put the drip in. So they put the drip in. And then by that afternoon, someone actually walked into the room and said, oh, there's a room available for Mrs. McKay. I just overheard that. I don't know what happened, but that labor went boom, boom, boom. And I said, grab the midwife this baby's coming. And for some reason I just intuitively turned over onto all fours. This midwife came in and said, what are you doing? You're mucking up the bed. I said, this baby's coming. She said, oh, come on. You've been mucking around for, you know, the last two days. She said, it can't come that quickly. And my husband put his face in hers and it is there's only the second baby. He, he'd only seen one other baby born. He put his face in hers. He said, how many babies have you had? He said, I think she'd know if there was a baby in her vagina. And the nurse got really angry and stormed out of the room. So the um, mid student had a look i said please have a look he didn't even have gloves on he taught my baby because no one had switched the oxytocin down
1: the oh, drip was going vas- and oh, she just
2: shot out and he's handing her to me to put on my breast and the nurse midwife worked back in and she said and she came at me with the suction tube because in those days they used to suction the baby oh, the face. before it went to the breast there was no need i said look she's coughing she's fine i'm putting her on the breast and then they wanted to give my baby a bottle of boiled water, which they used to do to make sure the baby didn't have esophageal atresia. Oh, right. I've so never even was, heard of that.
1: I'm learning no, that. No, well, today. that was
2: one of the tests. But they hadn't done that, you know, I since I've been working at postnatal. It hadn't happened for years where I'd been working. So I was absolutely shocked saying, you are not putting anything else in my baby's mouth. She's just had colostrum. I was tandem nursing my last child. I had enough, you know, I had plenty of fluid there for her. I said, she's been drinking. I can hear her swallowing and sucking. There's nothing wrong with my baby. Just don't do it. Wow. Which ended up they didn't. But, you know, I I felt like I was in a position where I shouldn't have had to advocate or argue (laughs) or do anything like that for myself. And, you know, then I went back to the ward and I think I really got the blues after that birth. Well, that was three days later. Fourth baby
1: yeah and that happened in your most vulnerable hour you can oh wow i can understand yeah. why you whereas i had letter. not you know look with the first baby you don't know and you you're not expecting
2: to have to yeah. stand up. but by the fourth baby i certainly didn't have to expect that i would have to explain anything and then a couple of days later or might have been a day later the mid student arrived in my ward at my bed with his textbook he said you were right he <laughs> said i'm going to go and show that midwife this textbook <laughs> And I said, you will be scrubbing bedpans for the rest rest of your stint. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do it. So I I have no idea what happened after that. But, Mm. you know, he was really on board. And I thought, well, look, at least one young person who's going to be looking after mothers, you know, at some stage um, or might be, will actually be able to you know have a little bit more information so make a difference yeah
1: Yeah. and it's hard because you know this is one of the other things I wanted to ask you is that because we we're all women birth very differently we're all very different we all have very different experiences but what systemically what would be some good practices that we could be looking at revising for when we're teaching these medical staff and when we're um, when, when hospitals are working out the policies on how babies should be born or can be born, what, what are some of the themes we need to be looking at? I think we need to look at our midwives and ask
2: our midwives that. Yeah. Someone like Rhea Dempsey would be a good person to ask that. Yeah. From.
1: yeah, you know, yeah. That,
2: that actually counsel women afterwards through birth trauma that, you know, help women adapt to what's happened for them. And, you know, I think also we're in quite a litigious society now. So yeah. people you know, hit the safety button a lot more quickly, probably. And it's important, you know that you, you do want to come out of this with a well and healthy baby, but you want a well and healthy mother as well. And sometimes those subtle things, like I wasn't in danger. I just had to advocate for myself at a volu- at a vulnerable time. There was nothing horrible happened. Yeah, it just wasn't you know, why should you argue when your brain is in that space of, you know, you're in a completely different hormonal chemical space, Yeah, you're not in, you know, you should not have to pull up your mother line
1: pants and yell at someone. To, yeah, just to be able to, to be heard. You should be, be heard from the very, from the very get-go. But I think whatever
2: happens to mothers and their babies at any stage, the big message is for professionals to listen to the mother because the mother can go in and, and think her baby's unwell and they'll say oh he's coming down with a tummy bag like everyone else you know like dismissive whereas if you can listen to that mother I mean if your child is having difficulty look might be a school-aged child having difficulty learning to read and mm. the mother will be trying to advocate for her child and she can be dismissed
1: all the time yeah I I know that um yeah, you hear those stories of that child arriving at the emergency and they say you're getting a tummy bug, but yet they've probably swallowed a button battery and the mum knows something's not right and then they keep going back and keep going back. And similar to um, I remember telling my midwife something's not quite right with my episiotomy. I could I could just feel it. I said, I don't know what I'm feeling, but something's not right. And it was very dismissed. It's normal, Steph. It's part of normal childbirth. You'll be fine. It'll recover. Um And then obviously when you took the mirror for the first time, because we were still in that generation of, you don't look down there. um, And saw, I thought, I thought like your your story with the second baby, I thought I'm having twins and they're so, you know, incapable that there's another baby's head. It just looked like a baby's head, but it was my bladder. And um, the the stitching had all come and done and it was quite infected from the episiotomy and there was a tear there as well. So it was a mess, but that feeling of, being told it's normal made me believe that it was normal for two years and I didn't really say anything to anyone I didn't tell anyone what happened to us because we just thought oh well it's normal it's not quite normal oh, and you're
2: struggling along and you don't talk to people I women I think don't necessarily share those things about their private parts either no they don't or that you know sex isn't gorgeous yeah you know whatever whatever else is happening to you or that you're
1: peeing your pants a bit you know or yeah, yeah of that sort of stuff. Yeah. you got fecal incontinence you think you need to do a fart and you've just filled your, your underpants with poo and you can't you didn't really know until you can feel wet like we don't talk about those things and I think I probably answered my own little question there about how do we change it systemically with the podcast we're trying to just get the the small wins like you know grabbing your hmm. cup of tea and sitting down with your daughter your sister your aunt your mum and having those conversations about well how do you have sex with prolapse how do you do it safely yeah. i don't know do you know what i mean yeah. we just don't hmm. talk about it but i'm hoping that we can do those small wins and change it a little bit for our girls i know yeah
2: yeah and even if they yeah and and it's and also reassuring them that it's a thing that can heal you can heal oh from from birth you mean from anything really like whether it's birth whether it's yeah an injury of some you know whatever whatever's happening on that you know even if it's some other kind of health advice but you know that yeah it's all fixable yeah. And, and if you we'll talk about it, it's yeah. going to be fixed more easily. I mean, even if you're feeling really sad and teary and not enjoying your baby, it's really good to get referral to a psychologist perhaps. Yes. You know, that I, I put up a post on Facebook about intrusive thoughts because women don't know that, you know, that, that this is actually really quite common to have intrusive yeah. thoughts about your baby getting hurt or that you might hurt your baby, you know, that yeah you might i mean i'm waking up in the night and saying to my husband here take him or i'm going to put him out the window you know like i was not going to put my baby out the window but he didn't say to me you're a dreadful mother he took the baby and put it on his chest and he went to sleep but you know those thoughts of your baby just floating out the window or
1: um yeah floating off the balcony or yeah forgetting to pick them up in the carrier and you left them in the supermarket i used to always have this reoccurring thought dream that I'd I'd left her somewhere and I couldn't find her you know like it was my responsibility I'd left the pram somewhere you know but you're right in the terms of their healing can be a long journey I think for women who are living with this significant pelvic organ prolapse like me it's a continual thing it's every day it's every day you've got to choose to look for positives. you've got to choose like like you said, have the support. I've had my counseling session just this morning, having regular Excellent. check-ins so that the healing is ongoing for sure. Yes yeah. yeah and the
2: sooner you can actually talk about it yeah and get some of that healing. I mean there will there are people out there who will support you. But if you don't tell them you need that support, they don't know what to do. And it might be a good friend that, you know, you take with you to the GP to get that referral to the psychologist. Um, 100%. And I think... Sorry. (laughs) That you have that, you know, that you can somehow talk to one of your friends because chances are they've had a very similar experience anyway. But we don't know. We think we're the one that's losing our plot and (laughs) we are going to go completely batshit crazy you know that and our baby will be unsafe because we're having these terrible thoughts it's it's a horrible thing Or, or women might even feel that their baby will be taken off them because they're feeling these terrible things and yet you know if women can say I'm having those thoughts and sometimes just even doing that can mean and and knowing that they're part of being a really good mother because you're you've got very protective hormones going on in your body. Yeah. And this is possibly some explanation. But if those things don't stop, get some help to work through and process, and maybe even some medication to help you with the anxiety that you're going to have around this. Because women who are having lots of intrusive thoughts, who then get into that cycle of thinking, oh, I'm a terrible mother, mm. they can't sleep. Yeah. So, you know, and then, sleep then deprivation. you're going, yeah, and you're going down that rabbit hole towards, um, you know, really bad mental health. Yeah, which is very, you know, a very slow process to come back from. So you may need medication. There's safe medication for breastfeeding. Please, please don't feel ashamed.
1: Yeah, Um, I I love that you just said that, because I think the stigma and taboo, especially in my generation and having babies, was that um, a couple of times I've been to a mums and bubs unit, I've put my hand up and checked myself in, especially the last one. And um, but when I got there, I said to my mum, because the Caritani and Trisillian were fully booked. So there's obviously a need. Women are having this um, need for support, but there's not enough of it. Um, I checked myself into a private facility where they mainly focus on mental health. And I said to my mom, I'm in the wrong place. All these women are on medication. They're crazy, is what I said, right? Not realizing that I really belonged there. I was really that unwell until I'd been through, I stayed there for three weeks, I think. Um, So I've been through a whole lot of sessions and workshops. And I know we're kind of going off a tangent here, but it wasn't until I realized that actually that makes you better yes I was in the right place I just didn't know it and I think because I had this facade of being, I can I can do anything I'm a superwoman I've conquered cancer I've had a baby after five years of not being able to fall pregnant so I can do anything but we need to show a bit of vulnerability to ourselves and be a bit kinder and say well actually I am not that great and it's okay and I'm not ashamed to share that so I love that you said that message
2: not at all you know it's just and look I have an anxiety disorder
1: it's just you know it's just part of me I don't you know to be honest Pinky I don't think I now don't know anyone who doesn't have some type of anxiety depression um, situational anxiety doesn't have to be anything you know but I don't know if I actually know anyone who doesn't have does something completely well and doesn't have anything yeah yes. I don't think we talked
2: talking before this and I was actually diagnosed with ADHD I think right and I might have mentioned that in the, in the yeah. podcast but yeah you know none of that and I haven't had anxiety all of my life I don't mm. think I think it came with that autoimmune disorder yeah. um, and you know as long as I take care of myself and I get enough sleep all those sorts of things are Okay, but sometimes we just have too many rocks in our wheelbarrow and the tyres go flat yeah. and we need some extra help to push that wheelbarrow full of rocks. Yeah, And it's not a shameful thing. It's, it's important to get that help and support. But if we don't tell anyone, if we keep up our facade, then we, we can spend a whole year of not enjoying our baby.
1: Yeah. I love that you shared that. I know so many women listening to this right now will look to you as a beacon because I know that uh, even in my circle of mums, Pinky McKay, you know, and they get a bit fangirl. To have someone of your stature to say that, I just want to thank you because that is so lovely for you to share your own personal experiences because I know when people then listen to this, they can say, oh, wow, okay, if someone like that can say it, then maybe I can too. That's, that's maybe so lovely. I can lovely. Put my hand up. Yeah, maybe I can put
2: my hand up and, yeah. It's okay. And, and don't blame everything on anxiety either. Yeah. You know, I, I actually changed GPs. And when the new GP opened up my folder, my yeah. file right across the front, it said anxiety in big capital letters. Now, wow. because of that, I actually have a cardiac disorder that was missed. It was put down <gasps> to anxiety. Ooh. Wow. So don't just say it's my anxiety. You know, oh, but I just got a second doctor who listened to me. I said I was waking up, was I having panic attacks in the middle of the night? He says, "Get around there and have an ECG." Okay, and it wasn't. And it turned out there was worse happening, and I had atrial fibrillation that had not been diagnosed for a very long time.
1: Oh,
2: Because goodness. it wasn't just anxiety. So don't just put it all down to anxiety. You know, like listen to that woman.
1: Yeah, yeah. Tapping in. Put I'm going to find. On. <laughs> I'm going to find a way. <laughs> That's that magical dust to just say, you know, listen to that intuition and this is how you do it once I discover it. (laughs)
2: Yeah, once I discover it. But, you know, we can all take care of ourselves and do the things that we need to do despite or because of or whatever. And I think, you know, once we are open about things, we might help one other mother.
1: Yeah. That knows that there's
2: hope that you can still function yeah. Even if you are, you know, working through some of these, you know, if you have some of these, I don't know, mental health conditions even, you know, yeah. I suppose that's what we call them. But that's right. It just sounds like such a horrible word, doesn't
1: yeah. it? Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm broken or something, like women's health. I'm, broken, always- I'm crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not crazy. <laughs> I might be. <laughs> I don't know yet. Yeah. It's a no, fun of crazy no and <laughs> yeah, that's right that's you know it's terrible I think things are changing and I do hope that we on this inertia of things changing for the better again for our you know my daughter's only five but I hope by the time that she's ready to become a mum that things seem to be just that little bit easier for her Do you know I think that's the whole um oh we hope
2: so yeah, yeah. and I mean social media can Put a lot of images of perfection into our minds. So we judge and we measure and we look at everyone that's got their lives together. But sometimes, and I remember with my own young kids, even some of the kids, you know, I might never get makeup on or I, you know, (laughs) mightn't have brushed my hair properly or whatever. And I'd look at these women who looked amazing. And then the next thing, you know, you'd hear their husbands were playing up or they were divorced or, you know, like there was all sorts of things that were going on that you never saw and sometimes the most perfect pictures are those of people who are trying to plaster the cracks anyway i remember teaching baby massage and i was talking about you know a three or four week session and i gave i'd give the women homework each week and one of them was to have a pajama day oh yeah you know whether you actually get out of your pajamas or you don't get out of your pajamas or whatever but have one of those days where you just stay at home and you tune Mm -hmm. into your baby you know make sure that there's food in the house and you don't have to rush out but just by not rushing out yeah. and not putting pressure on yourself to get dressed and put pants on I mean I think it's the pandemic you know if I've got proper pants on I think I'm, <laughs> I'm achieving that day but you know um, just to take the pressure off really and have a dummy day and just sit around with your baby and observe their cues and you know yeah. not no pressure and let them sleep on you you know ditch any rules that you might that. have and one of the women said to me, and she was always coming. And the other woman used to, you know, rush in with a baby under their arms. There was another one with twins that had rushed in with one in a carrier and one in her arms, sort of towards the beginning of the class. And this one was always on time, always immaculately groomed, had her makeup on. She said, "I can't do that." And I said, "Why? Why can't you?" And she said, "I promised myself before I had my baby that I would be dressed and made up by eight o'clock every morning." And, wow. I, looked her and I said, "How's it going for you?" Yeah, and she burst into tears. Oh. It wasn't going at all. Yeah. But, you know, again, you set these expectations. So sometimes that other mother, it isn't just about her being better than you. She really just needs you to be her friend and
1: and just, yeah, you know,
2: be, be kind.
1: And, be kind. And
2: she can let it down if she needs to or if she needs to have her house immaculate and her makeup on, that's okay. That's how she's going to feel right.
1: Yeah, that's right, and less but judgment. It's not that she's
2: better than you.
1: Yeah, that's right, and in less judgment. We need to be judging less to, to, to others and ourselves. I think I'm my worst critic half the time.
2: Most women are. We, we are mostly hardest on ourselves than anybody else. I don't mm-hmm. think anybody else cares. And remember that, you know, don't let anybody shoot on
1: you. <laughs> I like that <laughs> including yourself <laughs> yeah, and what
2: other people think of you is none of your business it doesn't yeah, matter and the more so. the more you worry about what other people are thinking of you the more control they have over you whether it's you know the lady that you don't know on the internet or whether it's your mother
1: yeah oh yeah yeah that's that's the thing I'm learning it as I get older you know it only it took me time too yeah it, it does time you know it, it really does to be Strong
2: enough to, and I think as women, you know, it, it's in our biology to want approval and to want to be part of the group. Because I think as you know, think back to the cave woman times. If you created a disturbance or a disagreement in that group, you could be kicked out of it. Yes. You and your children could starve. Yeah. So somehow, in that back of our mind, somewhere deep down, we actually don't want to not belong
1: band together. Yeah, yeah. We do want to belong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I know what you mean, We want to not belong. Well, I've loved, we <laughs> you don't we've want to be out of the, the tribe. No, I've loved that we've been able to band together today, Pinky. Now tell us if our listeners wanted to find out more about all of your amazing books. And by the way, I will say thank you for the booby biggies <laughs> because I oh, was introduced <laughs> to them for my second born when I kind of got the knack. And I do think they played a massive part in being able to just feel what it feels to get a letdown i'll eat one and then like you know not long after i'm like oh i'm having a letdown this is what it is yeah cool oh how awesome <laughs> yeah
2: well, women traditionally have been fed food and herbs after birth and the research has been a bit slow catching up there's lots mm-hmm. of research around dairy um animals yeah, because that makes people money so yes. there's lots of research but there is research we actually funded a research project with Victoria University here in Melbourne last year. Okay. And have got a great set of literature reviews that, you know, they did a big literature review. There is research around um, ingredients and how they can impact. And so lactogenic foods either support the production of prolactin, which is your milk making hormone, or they support the development of mammary tissue, which can be You know, both of those are factors. And of course, not everyone is going to have a response because they eat a certain food,
1: you know, but
2: if it supports a particular woman and, you know, lots of women are supported by that, it just means also that mother is getting nourished for her benefit, not just to make milk but for her benefit because if we don't eat (laughs) you know your body is amazing it's recovering from growing and birthing a baby and now you're making milk but you need to meet your own physical needs as well as you know your body making milk so I think it's important that we do nourish ourselves not just dismiss that food doesn't matter, starving mothers can breastfeed their babies. I mean, how long for, how healthy are those babies? Research yeah. shows that those babies weren't particularly healthy anyway um, and that women, go, when they go into starvation mode, You know, they're probably feeding their babies a whole lot more frequently, which will push their prolactin levels up. But also when you go into survival mode, your prolactin levels go up. So that's the explanation of starving women breastfeeding their babies. Um, and the poor starving women aren't getting enough nourishment yes. to... To sustain themselves so yeah you know we can't, we can't, we can't you. you know it's it's not an excuse to say you know to dismiss the importance of a mum being nourished
1: yeah um yeah.
2: by using examples of starving women yeah. Yeah. because those women need to be looked after too <laughs> yeah we do we definitely need to <laughs> and so there's um you know boobyfoods.com.au and yep. um there's also at my website pinkymckay.com Beautiful,
1: and that's where we can find all of your amazing publications. You can find my books
2: and bits and paces, Yeah, yeah, my publications, and there's lots of blogs. I mean, there's free blogs. There's a free ebook to download on the Booby Foods website, which is making more mummy milk naturally. So, awesome. you know, just you can download the first chapter of my sleeping like a baby at my website. So, you know, I just sort of think let's get that information out there as much as we can that that women can feel normalised with what they're doing.
1: Thank you. That's so lovely to share. That's awesome. And I think also if people are listening, I would love and for the A type personality mums like me in the you know 80s babies, you need to go and watch that TEDx talk because that was very enlightening for me. So um yeah, thank you so much That's for our right. chat today. It's been wonderful. <laughs> I've really enjoyed talking to you and lots of amazing stories. I feel like you need to write memoirs now. <laughs> Maybe I do.
2: I don't know. I just go, who the the dickens wants to read about my silly
0: stories?
2: (laughs) But they are, yeah. But there have been so many changes. And I think, you know, over time, over the decades, so many changes. And hopefully they keep changing for the better.
1: Yeah, I do too. Thank you so much for coming on today, Pinky. Thank you, Steph, for having me. (laughs) Awesome. What an amazing journey and woman, right? I've loved every minute of talking with Pinky McKay. The way that we could have an open and frank conversation about our lived experiences that were both quite different, we did that so hopefully it can help others, especially when it comes to maternal mental health. We'll include links to where you might be able to find support if this is you right now. Pinky McKay speaks to women of all generations and Obviously, it comes from a place of advocating for gentle parenting and breastfeeding. It's always been her way, and it's the way that's worked for her. If you are listening and you feel torn by the pressure to do things one certain way, please know that the Brave Mama community is here to support your decisions your way. We encourage everyone to look at all sides To be able to decide what might be best for you, and seeking help when you're stuck and you know don't know which way is best for you. When we know better, we can do better. In our next episode, we talk to the CEO of Modibody, Christy Chong, is all about talking periods and motherhood. Tune in. Bye for now.